Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. I didn't hear anything you just said because I was just visualizing something as I read it for the first time. So I'm going to start here. Okay. Tim Kirkchen, does Adnan Verk, does he look like the undercover CIA agent who saves, wait a minute. Hold on. Who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, welcome to Tangier. <laughs> that is so good. Awesome. So, so well written. It is and so good. It's amazing. It's nearly perfect. My God. He's got like a three-piece suit on. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you didn't know he was, you didn't even know, you didn't know he was a killer. But welcome to Tangier! <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, this is my, if you can believe it, my seven-year anniversary at ESPN this week. And that is a new career highlight. I finally made it on the Levitard show, as it looks like. Stugatz and Michael Jr. have had me on a few times, talk movies, Canada, and baseball. And the first time I was on, I said to Stugatz, I said, just please get me in the looks like game. I don't care how or when. And then I started getting tweets from everybody, and they said, please tell me you heard it, and I didn't. And then when I was on the Rosillo show, uh, Steve Cerruti, our producer, who's a great guy, said, all right, let, let's just do it as a segment. So I hadn't heard it, and I said, all right, let me, let's play it on the air in my first reaction, but it was hysterical. Kirkchen actually called me right before when he heard I was going to play it, and he goes, hey, if you, if you don't like it, I'm an innocent bystander, but I think you will like it. And uh, it was phenomenal, because obviously it had the movie tie-in. So I said, great, this will work on Cinephile for our audience as well. So Thank you very much to Dan Stugatz, Mike Ryan, Roy, Guillermo, Chris, and the entire crew for making me a part of the show. I said last time this was the one-year anniversary. I looked it up. May 10th was our first cinephile, so let's do this. Today's May 2nd. We'll do the official one-year anniversary show next time. I'll have Dan dial up a quiz. Hang on. So I was right? No, no, because you said a year would have been last month. So technically, May 9th, May 10th was the first episode, and then I said episode 27 is coming up, and you go, oh, wait, wouldn't it have already been two episodes ago? So you were wrong. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. I'll edit this part out. Yeah, exactly. This is not going to be making the air. But anyways, so May 16th is going to be when we'll celebrate the one-year anniversary. So Dan's going to have a giveaway. We'll have a quiz set up. We're going to give away shirts. There's not many shirts left. I'm being absolutely honest about this. I'm shocked how little we have left. So trust me, you're going to want to get in on the quiz. We'll do that officially next time. Plus, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, nobody had the correct answer to Martin Scorsese and Michael Ballhaus? Yeah, I don't think we got much response there. It was kind of a furied last second kind right. of throw in. You wanted me to have a question, even though you only told me when we started taping. I don't know really how that went down. Well, I told you months ago to do a question. Uh, you never got around to you it. Also you also gave me a book that disappeared. We yeah. got a lot of things happening. There's, there's a lot of things happening. So the question, that they have no excuse. For people that do not listen to all hour and 15 of the podcast, I'm doing it very early. Your chance to win a personal journey with Martin Scorsese. It's a DVD of Marty talking about American film history. It's incredible. It's yours to have. You just have to answer one question. How many films did he make with cinematographer Michael Bauhaus, who recently passed away, who we paid tribute to on last uh, episode of the Scorsese stories on Cinephile? You're going to have to give me that answer, too. I will. <laughs> well, just tweet us at Cinephile ESPN or Adnan ESPN. Also, we're on Instagram now. This is big news. So we're on Instagram uh, I don't know how to run it. I've got somebody running it. That's all I can tell you about that. Stanzik runs the the Twitter. I have I have uh, what's it called when you uh, auction a uh, farm it out. We, our, our staff 
I've outsourced, outsourced it to. <laughs> I've outsourced it to somebody for Instagram. Our staff has grown significantly. Yes, and which is why on Instagram now, Ben Lyons, my man. I got to meet his dad, famed film critic Jeffrey Lyons. You'll see pictures on the Cinephile Instagram of us at Fenway Park hanging out. Jeffrey's hilarious. Uh, by way of introduction, Ben was trying to be ingratiating. He goes, oh, this is what a big fan Adnan is. Uh, on his podcast, he told the story about going to see Silence the day before Christmas, like abandoning his family. And his dad just goes, Silence? That pretentious film? He goes, Let, let's make a movie about a bunch of people going to spread a religion where they already have their own religion. Everything's working out fine. And Ben immediately goes, all right, let's just change the subject here. And, and it's going to blow up right now. We can't do this. But uh, his dad's got stories, man. Because Ben's grandfather was friends with Hemingway. So then Jeff, his dad, was telling me a story. Like when he was 12, he has pictures of him and Hemingway. Hemingway taught him to shoot a gun. If there was uh, Truman Capote. And then just movie stories, obviously. He was like, oh, I had Kirk Douglas, Spartacus stories. But he kept wanting to do baseball trivia because he's a huge Red Sox fan. So he kept giving me baseball trivia, and I kept wanting to hear more movie stories. I told him about the experience with De Niro. He goes, De Niro's the worst interview I've ever had in my career. I'm like, yeah, it's not great. I go, he was great on Cinefile. Go back and look how great Bob was. Also, thanks to all the uh, reaction we did last time in Cinefile with songs that make you think of a movie. Now, again, I, I admit like a famous pop song, and then because it's so wonderfully used in a film that is not what you think of so i don't know if this one necessarily works because because then people just go well any song i'm like well i meant like a really popular song but in this case maybe it is a really popular song it's before my time the resounding number one people kept tweeting and it, it does absolutely make me think of the way when i hear the song stuck in the middle of you steelers wheel reservoir dogs that tells you about our audience they just they just think of michael madsen hacking a guy's ear off They're like yeah every time i hear that Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. It is a great song and a great movie, and thank you so much for the feedback. As always, Cinephiles on iTunes, please leave a comment or you can review us. I rank my movies out of four Maple Leafs, but the reviews there are out of five Maple Leafs. Really appreciate all of your feedback. I read it all. By the way, when I was with Jeffrey Lyons and Ben at Fenway, I could have been at, at uh, LeMoyne. Props to my people. Kathy Leagrand, Julie Grossman, they had Paul Schrader there. I'm like, What? Julie, who's the professor, had DM me. He goes, listen, I'll, I'll comp you a room. If you want to come up to Syracuse, you can have dinner with me and Paul Schrader. I'm like, oh, I would just, just bamboozle him with Taxi Driver and Autofocus and Affliction and American Gigolo and Bringing Out the Dead. So uh, I have to talk to Julie to find out how it all went. I saw some pictures. Schrader is the best. The, the poster, Kathy goes, I, I posters for you and Dan. Schrader with the sunglasses down low. Like, it looks so cool. By the way, I think our pictures are coming up soon with regards to the photo shoot that we took. I don't know if those are going to be distributed. I know we've tweeted those out. A few, yeah. Rosillo tweeted a few. Is that the yeah. photo shoot you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're out there. Yeah. People are mocking us about that. But you can see that uh, on Cinephile ESPN or Adnan ESPN. Also, thanks to Ben Mankwitz. I thought he was sensational last time on Cinephile. Um, of course, he's the host of Turner Classic Movies. Also very politically active. So if you follow him on Twitter, which I do, Ben Mank 77 either you love what he has to say or you'll dislike what he has to say, but he's very out there. Uh, giving his opinion, and he's so generous. I sent him a DM. I said, we got to send you a Cinephile shirt. He said, well, I can send you some stuff as well. So I now have a TCM hat, which I don't know if we're allowed to wear hats on Mike and Mike, but I was thinking of wearing it when I fill in next time with Dan uh, for Greeny. If not, I'll wear it with uh, Rosillo. I know that there's there's not a strict dress code there. But I don't this, think you're allowed to wear a hat on Mike and Mike. Okay, I'll do it on Rosillo then. I'll wear it this Thursday Friday, my TCM hat. Uh, this is for you, Dan. I get the hat, and you get... A bottle of wine here. Alfred Let's Hitchcock go. presents Zinfandel 2015. All right. That, of course, is from Vertigo. I don't think I asked Ben about Vertigo, but maybe it's just a bottle he thought that I would enjoy. And I do love Vertigo. It's my favorite Hitchcock movie. So there you go. All Very right, nice Ben. Ben Mankiewicz hooking us up. Very nice of him. Also, thanks to Hank Azari, Adam Freifeld, the entire team of Brockmeyer. I was in Las Vegas. If you listened last time I told the story, I got to go and host the panel there. Uh, when Hank walked in, he goes, hey, Adnan, great to see you. 
I said, good to see you, too. Thanks for helping us out. I said, do you want some of the questions, Hank? I'm going to ask you for the panel. He said, sure. He took a look, then handed it back to me. He said, okay, and uh, I'm going to have some questions for you as well. <laughs> I started laughing. He's like, I'll quiz you about African swallows. See what you know there. Uh, but I thanked him for being so generous with us. I said, you were the, the most well-researched guest we've ever had. Like, you knew more about the hosts than we knew about you. And I said, did you do your own research? Like, I just need to know. He said, no, my buddy Joel, who's a gigantic sports fan, he's part of Brock Mari, he goes, he knew everything about all of you. So he had given me notes on everybody. Uh, but obviously I watched ESPN, and it was a blast for me to be there. He said, um, we talked about, like, turning the tables, like when the, the guests are interviewing the host. He said, I did that to Golik Jr. because I, I was fascinated. I'm like, you're, you're Mike Golik's son, and you're doing the show. And he goes, I just kept asking, like, how, how unusual is this for you? And I think afterwards he felt uncomfortable because he's like, oh, sorry, I, I took up the interview so much about me. And Hank was like, no, what I was asking you about you. And he goes, that show that they do, the weekend observations? I'm like, yeah, him and Stu goes, It seems like there's a lot of like kind of uh, bickering back and forth. I go, no, it's just like a kind of a ball, you know, it's just kind of a lot of uh, fun animosity. I think it's a lot of uh, tomfoolery back and forth, but it's all good natured. He goes, yeah, yeah, it seems like they're always kind of going back and forth with each other. I'm like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so the panel was a lot of fun. I got to meet Amanda Pete. I just heard her on Marin's podcast. So we were joking about how she finds her kids' homework so difficult. And I said, I can relate to that. The math now is different. And Hank was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, the walling division is different now. Like, it's different when we learned it. And Hank was kind of appalled by that. Um, then I mentioned De Niro to Hank because I said I had forgotten to mention this when you were here for ESPN. But I can't wait for this movie because I'm on GoldDerby.com as an Oscars expert. I'm also an Emmys expert, which I shouldn't be because I don't watch nearly enough TV. But I did my uh, Emmy predictions, which are coming out middle of July. I want to say July 13th, July 15th. Very early predictions. De Niro right now is a heavy favorite to at least be nominated for Best Actor for his performance as Bernie Madoff. He, Riz Ahmed, John Turturro for the night of. And Azaria right now, I checked the list yesterday. He's like top five to get nominated for Supporting Actor. So I said, what was De Niro like in this Bernie Madoff movie? I can't wait to see it. It's coming out of HBO, I believe, May 20th. And uh, Hank said he was great. I go, did you know De Niro at all? He said, no, because I, I had not met him. Uh, he was great. He was very nice, you know, down to earth, calm. He goes, it's, and he kind of laughed because it's funny because, you know, the interviews he does, he's just not. Not that, uh, not that out there. I'm like, yeah, he goes, but he's a really genuinely nice guy. And then Amanda Pete goes, I have a De Niro story for you. And I said, really? And she said, they were at an award show, and <laughs> Sarah Paulson walked by. And afterwards, I realized why Sarah Paulson made a Peter Friends because of Studio 60, the Aaron Sorkin show they did, which I liked. Most people did not, did not do well. It was canceled after a season. But Sarah Paulson was walking by, and De Niro saw her, and he goes, hey, hey. And Sarah Paulson lit up. She goes, oh, my God. Robert De Niro, America's Greatest Living Actor, is like giving a look of recognition to me. He did it again. He was like, hey. And she was like, uh, like just waiting with bated breath. And he goes, Amy. <laughs> and to which Hank jumped in, because I'm like, well, did, did he think you were Amy Poehler? Like, we don't know. And, and, and Hank goes, well, he may have known who Sarah Paulson is because he goes, he's just not good with names. Because he goes, we were on the set and the script supervisor was like Shelly and he kept calling her Susan. And we're like, no, Bob, it's, it's, he's like, he goes, he's just, it's a great guy. He's just bad with names. But just imagine Sarah Paulson's face. Like, oh my God, Robert De Niro knows who I am. He loves my work. Amy? Brockmire is a ton of fun. Uh, I believe Dan tweeted some pictures from that panel. I, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. The show is phenomenal. We'll try to get Amanda Pete on at some point. It airs Wednesdays on IFC. But thanks to Hank and the entire team for having me out there in Las Vegas. Saturday, I got to go watch the Godfather reunion. I mean, unbelievable event at Radio City Music Hall in Manhattan. My wife and I went as an early Father's Day present, so we felt way too guilty about abandoning three children for like 13 hours. So we skipped the first Godfather and just because you could, you could have watched both films and then the panel. But we got there for like maybe 20 minutes into Godfather 2, watched that film, which was amazing because like the crowd would just start clapping, like all the famous scenes. 
I, I, Dan has pointed out maybe Attica is my favorite Pacino line, but I got to say maybe a close second, 1A, 1B, is I know it was you, Fredo. Like the, seeing that scene in the theater was unbelievable. Like the, when, when John Cazal says, oh, Johnny Ola told me about this place. Old man Roth wouldn't come here, but Ola loves it. The look on Al's face, like, oh, my God, like he knows his brothers betrayed him. And then the next scene, you know, it's New Year's Eve. Everyone's dancing the way. He just grabs him, just goes, I know it was you, Fredo. Sicilian kiss at death. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. The whole crowd just started applauding. I'm like, you, you get chills watching that again. At least a half dozen times, people would start clapping. Famous lines, you know, uh, Hyman Roth, when he says, Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Or when De Niro, playing a young Vito Corleone, says, oh, make him an offer you can't refuse. Whole crowd started going nuts. Uh, but it was really cool to watch it on the big screen again. Oftentimes, I'm asked which one I prefer. It's like picking children. I don't know. They're both two of the greatest movies of all time. I would generally think I'd say Godfather 1 because I love Brando so much. But then I watch Godfather 2 again in that theater, and I'm telling you, it's the greatest sequel ever made. It's so uh, rich and detailed and emotionally resonant, the way it carries the story forward. That scene where Fredo gets killed, um, it's, it's incredible. I mean, really, it is. And um, Taylor Hackford was the moderator. really should have been someone like Ben Lyons. Like ben would have been great. Taylor Hackford is the director of Ray, also directed Devil's Advocate, so maybe because he's friends with Pacino he did it. I have no idea. But he told a story. He said Obama was uh, asked in an interview when he went to Tahoe what it was like being there. And he said, all I thought about when I was flying in, I saw Lake Tahoe was poor Fredo, <laughs> which is true. Like that scene, you're like, oh, man. The fact, just Michael's so ruthless. And it's amazing watching it again. Like De Niro's uh, technical expertise is amazing channeling young Vito. You know, Pacino is just so ruthless and chilling. Um, Talia Shire, emotional. Diane Keaton, you feel for her. But I, I really think Cazal is so underrated because it's like, you know, Sonny, James Conn's character is all just fire and, and hot temperament. And Michael, like I said, is is so cold and, and clinical. But like Fredo's just got so much heart. Like the way the way Michael describes him earlier to Tom Hagen, Duvall's character, he's like, Fredo's got a good heart, but he's stupid. Like, he's just, he's dumb. He's, he's a dumb guy. Like, like this, is, this is what they think of Fredo. And that scene where Fredo says to him, like after he goes back to see Michael, he's like, what about me? Like, you're my, you're my younger brother, Mike. I'm smart. I can take care of myself. Like, poor guy, man. Just poor Fredo. So they come out for the panel. De Niro obviously still looks great. We just saw him a year ago here at ESPN. Um, Duvall walking a little slower. Coppola, I mean, overweight, bit of a limp. I was like, oh, man. Like, he, like that's when you appreciate 45th anniversary. Like, these guys, like, the fact they're all together here on this stage, this is surreal. Uh, Jimmy Kahn now, he's, he's definitely advanced aging. We're pushing 80. Diane Keaton looks great. Tally Shaw looks great. And the rock star is Pacino. You would have thought the biggest ovation was Bob, and maybe because it's Tribeca, so they're used to seeing De Niro. Loudest ovation, though, was Pacino, which made me think of uh, my friend Ryan McGee in high school, his brother Shane, who's a big movie savant. He said to me, De Niro's the better actor. He goes, like, of all time, De Niro will be on the list of greatest actors of all time, empirically. But Pacino's more beloved. He goes, people just love Al Pacino. And it made me think of what Van Pelt once told me uh, with golf. He said, Nicholas has the most majors, but Arnold Palmer is the most beloved. That is the first and last golf analogy we'll be making. Instead of I would throw in there as well. Leno got better ratings, but yes. Letterman was more beloved. Exactly. This is another good example of this. Um, so a lot of the stories have been rehashed. I'll tell one for each cast member. I apologize if you've already heard the stories, but I'm approaching this as you know nothing about The Godfather and Godfather 2, just like the way Dan and I And just real quickly, yeah. the way you're completely avoiding that there was a Godfather 3 has been very impressive. <laughs> it's almost as if the film did not exist. Yeah, nobody – I'll get to that in a sec, actually. Remind me. I'll go through each cast member. So Talia Shire, um, she originally had to beg her brother, Francis Ford Coppola, to cast her in the movie. 
He said that the part called for a homely Italian. He goes, I think Tally, that's what he calls her Tally. He goes, Tally's so beautiful. I'm like, no, like, it was so, so sweet. The crowd's like, oh, he's like, oh, she's my beautiful sister. Like, she's not homely. She's not going to play this homely Italian, but she begged for the role and she was nails. Diane Keaton didn't talk much during the panel, had a couple of comments. One was she said, I didn't know why, why I was in the movie. Like, I'm looking around, it's a bunch of these mafia guys. And I'm like, why? And then she goes, I read an article actually recently. Francis said, I guess he picked me because I was eccentric. So there's that. And then Coppola immediately interjected because the crowd's laughing. He's like, no, this is the thing. Kay was written as this New England wasp, and I'm like, she's just a very bland character. I knew Diane, because she's spunky and fun and different, would give the role something. And he goes, in fact, watching again now, because Francis goes, I have not seen Godfather 2 in ages. Godfather 1 I had to watch recently because we did a restoration. Godfather 2 I had not seen in decades. He said, I'm reminded how, you know, Kay is not, does not have a lot to do, but the two scenes are unbelievable. Like, that abortion scene's unreal. And he goes, in fact... Tally gave me that idea, and Diane Keaton was shocked. She goes, really? She goes, yeah, Tally, Tally Shire told Francis Ford Coppola, you should have a scene rather than it being a miscarriage that Kay actually had an abortion and tells Michael, like, that's how much she despises him. That's the level of their animosity, and that's one of the best scenes in Godfather 2. So that was cool. Jimmy Conn was great. Uh, they, they were mainly asking him about Brando because he said that a lot of the actors were so intimidated of Brando. Uh, but I guess James Conn and Duvall said that. He goes, Jimmy's really funny, so he was always joking around with Marlon. But Duvall, funny as well. Pacino, very shy. At that time especially, he was just in awe of Brando. And it kind of made sense. Like, he's the godfather, and I'm Michael, and I'm his son. Whereas, I guess, Khan and Duvall were joking a lot with Brando. And Duvall told the story. He said, the wedding scene, him and Brando kept taking turns mooning each other. And Coppola's just like, enough. You guys got to stop this. Like, we got women and children here. But they just kept going because they're just acting like a couple of sophomore children. And at one point, the woman turned to Duvall and just said, uh, Mr. Duvall, you're fine, but, but how about the balls on that Brando? <laughs> that was the biggest laugh of the night. <laughs> Just so good. I think Duvall's character is so important now to Godfather 3 because I remember they asked him once what happened with that. And they asked Pacino actually one time. This was not at this event, but I read in another interview. Why didn't it work? And he said, I really think we missed Duvall's character. I really think Tom Hagen was just such an important character, and Duvall's such a good actor. We missed that element. Duvall, for his part, was asked about it, and he just said, well, they were all doing it for the money. Like, go ask Francis and Al. Like, they just paid the money, and they didn't give me enough money. So I said, no, I'm not doing it. Simple as that. Like, I'm not sentimental. If you guys are doing it for the money, I'll do it for the money. If you're not going to pay me, no. So that was that with regards to Godfather 3. Somebody yelled at one point Godfather 4, but, but Francis and company did not take the question. So, yeah, they didn't even touch Godfather 3. Like, it was as if it did not exist. Um, Coppola, many stories. In fact, he was almost fired. At one point, he said, early on in the production, I was almost fired. So I fired the people that I thought were working for the studio. He goes, I fired like 12 or 14 people. I didn't even know if I had authority to do that. But I knew they were undermining me with the studio. So I'm like, well, I'm going to fire them. And if someone says, I can't do it, then whatever. I don't care. They're gone. So that happened. And even he read the original Godfather book. Dan, I don't know if you've read it. I think it's pretty good. But he said he wasn't that impressed. He goes, I read it. And I was like, nah, I, I, there was a lot wrong with it. So he goes, I felt really challenge as a screenwriter to take out all the stuff that I thought was unimportant and and uh, superfluous and just focus on the, the essential elements of it. And oftentimes we know that cliche, the book is better than the movie. Indisputable. The Godfather movie is much better than the book. You read Mario Puzo's book and you watch the movie, it's not even close. That's amazing. I've been searching for an example of that for the longest time. I've yeah. never heard anyone say the movie is better than the yeah, book. That's ever. the rare one. That is absolutely true. You can't find anybody that would argue that point. Uh, so Coppola talked about that. Uh, De Niro only answered one question. Poor Bob, like an hour straight. He's just sitting on the panel, was not asked a question. And then finally Taylor Hackford asked him about Godfather 2. A little more uh, loquacious than Jeffrey Lyons will have you believe. Uh, Bob just told the story about playing Vito Corleone. And he just said, I had, he goes, this is back in the old days. You had to get the big tapes even before VHS tapes. I had to get the reels. And he goes, there was a place on, uh, I think it was 34th and 8th. 
He said, I went and I just watched uh, the scenes of Brando. I had it clipped to just watch him. So I just watched all of his scenes over and over. And I tucked notes and I tried to kind of get the essence of it. And I didn't want it to be an imitation of Brando, but obviously I'm playing a young Vito, so I kind of wanted to have that. So that's how I studied it. And he goes, then I went to Italy, and I had my tape recorder, and I recorded the accent and the dialect and tried to speak Italian the right era and stuff. And, and he goes, it was, it was fun for me to do. It was great. He goes, when Francis asked me to do it, I was really happy to do it. I was excited about it. I wasn't intimidated by it. And then Coppola jumped in. He goes, well, this is the thing. I didn't – he goes, De Niro obviously does not look like Brando. I did not want – I did not cast Bobby – because I thought he looked like Marlon, but I knew he'd be able to capture the essence of a young Vito Corleone. So I didn't want, want him to think like, hey, you got to imitate a young Brando. It's channel a young Vito and have those mannerisms. But I, I think watching the movie, you do at times see how Bob was able to get whatever Brando's mannerisms were in The Godfather. Brando, for his part, was only 47 at the time, very young to play Vito Corleone. Studio did not want him, knew he was a major pain, knew he was expensive. He had to screen test for it. Coppola had to sign off. Hey, he's, he's not going to be difficult. It'll be all right. He turned down Coppola for The Conversation, which is a movie actually he'd make later on. But he stuffed the cotton balls in his mouth. He's still getting the voice going a little bit. And he said, the cat, and Jimmy Conn told that story. because you know that cat? He keeps stroking. He goes, that's only one take. That was a studio cat. Just happened there. Brando took it. Hey, one take. Let's try it with a cat. And he goes, Brando put the cat on the table. The cat literally sat down like it, like it, like it lived there. Like that was his master. It was unreal. And Coppola said, Brando, whatever you'll say about him, great with children, great with animals. And he goes, he was very affectionate and caring. And that's how you kind of luck into those takes. And of course, my man, my favorite actor, Al Pacino, he's told the story a hundred times, but it was fun hearing him tell it again, just as I heard him tell it a year ago when I, my, we saw him do the, uh, an evening with Al Pacino. But he said they didn't want me. He goes, you know, bottom line is they did not want me. Francis wanted me. Francis kept saying, especially the scenes in Sicily, I keep seeing Pacino's face. And the studio kept saying, no, we want Ryan O'Neill or Robert Redford. And then Coppola jumped in to the crowd. He goes, no, don't laugh. Because he goes, there were blonde-haired, blue-eyed Sicilians. You know, 200 years ago, the French were there, et cetera. So he goes, it wasn't that crazy. But that's who they wanted. And he goes, Al, they just kept saying, he's too short. He's too unknown. Who is he? And Pacino was laughing. He goes, like, I knew they didn't want me. Like, I had to screen test so many times. And then Coppola jumped in. He goes, yeah. He goes, I remember the fifth time I called Al the screen test, his girlfriend answered the phone. And then Pacino started laughing. And she's like, why are you torturing him? Like, why do you keep asking me to come back? Like, if, if you want him, fine. If not, stop bucking him. And the Pacino was laughing on stage as he was obviously recalling that moment. And he said even the wedding scene week in, Pacino said, me and Diane were doing it. He goes, and, and her and I are both theater actors. And we're like, this, what are we doing? He goes, after the set was over, he went back to the hotel and we got bombed. Back then, Pacino used to drink. He goes, we used to, we just got bombed. We're just like, this is the worst movie ever. Like, what are we doing in this movie? And he said, but I'll never forget the second week, Francis called me over and he goes, he was having dinner with his family. And he said, do you remember this? And Coppola shook his head, no. And Pacino said, you're with your family. And he started laughing because I thought it was the funniest thing. You didn't ask me to sit down. Like, you were there with your family. There was an open chair, but you didn't ask me to sit down. You just, and I was like, okay, I'll just stand. And what you said to me was like, listen, Al, like I'm the reason you're in this movie. Like I'm the guy fighting for you, but they want to fire you. Like they'll fire you right now if they could. And we like we don't have much time left. Like and you've got to pick it up. So here's what I'm doing. I've cut together the dailies and the rushes from what we've done so far, and I've set it up at the studio. So you go watch it tonight, and and see if you can turn this thing around because they want to get rid of you, and it's not working. And Al goes like, I really appreciated how honest he was with me, and the fact I went and got to see the rushes. And Sidney Lumet, one of my favorite filmmakers, of course, did Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico. He said sometimes he'll allow his actors to come see the rushes and dailies and said Pacino always comes. Some actors, they do their take, see ya, you do what you want with me. Because Pacino always comes. He always scrutinizes it. Okay, I should have done this differently. Or can I do that take again? On Dog Day, in fact, he watched the dailies and he goes, we got to reshoot everything. And Lumet's like, what? They're like two days in. He goes, no. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, what? He goes, Sonny 
because he was wearing glasses and he goes, he would, he wouldn't wear glasses. He said he'd want to be caught. He wants the adulation of fame. We got to do it again without me wearing sunglasses. <laughs> and Lamette's like, all right, like that, that, you're right. Like when he, when he put it that way, like, okay. So with these rushes, Pacino goes, I didn't know specifically, but I watched it and I go, I'm not doing a good job. And here's what the problem was. He goes, I wanted to play Sonny. He goes, because Sonny's the fun role. He's mercurial. He's passionate. He's angry. He goes, that one you can sink your teeth into. He goes, Michael's very enigmatic. And you have to draw this line that he goes from here to here at the end. And so I was really underplaying it to try to get to that moment. But I guess the studio was watching me just going, he's not doing anything. He's just boring. So Francis did something I'll never forget. He goes, he moved up the Salazzo scene. And it was like the next day. And he goes, and that's actually Michael's best scene that I could really dig into. And he goes, thankfully, the studio loved that. And when they saw that, they're like, oh, this Pacino is really good. And then they left us alone. And Coppola said, that is true. I did move that up. I was like, you know, I, I knew you were struggling. So I was like, let me help him out. Let me give him a good scene. And I knew that you would nail that scene. And you did. And it's, it's, it's movie magic. So uh, Pacino is very affectionate towards Coppola. Like when they were on stage, he hugged him. He kissed him. Like he, he, and he's always, in every interview, he always says, it's all about Francis. Without Francis, I wouldn't have this career. Like the Godfather is what made me. Although it cost him money because when they kept turning him down, he then took a role for the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Then when Paramount told Pacino he wanted him, the other studio sued him for breach of contract. So when he finished The Godfather, he was out $15,000 in lawyer fees because he was originally contractually signed for the gang that couldn't shoot straight. So The Godfather cost Al Pacino money at the time, which, of course, he was able to recoup later. And Jeffrey Lines, Ben Lines' dad, told me this story when I told him how much I love Pacino. He said the woman that introduced me to Ben's mom, because um, 5'10", beautiful blonde, was living in New York, got a knock on the door 40 years ago. A man said to her, hey, my name is Al Pacino. I got this bottle of wine. I just got this part in this movie called Panic in Needle Park, which was Al's breakthrough movie. He goes, I just want someone to celebrate with. And she said, sorry, I've got plans. Go bug somebody else and close the door on him. <laughs> Pretty funny. Pacino, Panic in Needle Park, which also, yeah, that's the other movie that Coppola had said. He goes, that's why also I really liked Al. And that movie hadn't come out yet. So the studio was like, who is this guy? And I was like, trust me, I've already seen this movie. He's done. And I keep seeing his face, especially in those Sicily scenes. Pacino also thanked the producer, Al Ruddy, which I've never heard him mention before. He said, Al Ruddy kept saying on the set, hey, Pacino, hey, 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 Pacino, you're going to be great. And he goes, he kept giving me encouragement. I kept laughing. I said, I don't, okay, Al, like, I don't know why I'm here, but okay. And he was like, no, nah, Pacino, you're going to be great. And along with Nino Rota's music, Dean Tavalaris's production design, I really think another unsung hero, along with the late John Cazales Fredo, is Gordy Willis. Gordon Willis is the director of photography for the Godfather films. And that movie, it was revolutionary how dark it was. Like physically, it was so dark. It's so underlit. At times, maybe it's too far. You really can't see any of the characters. It's like you got to turn the light up here. And apparently Paramount gave Coppola a lot of pushback. Like, wait, this movie's just too dark. Like we're trying to make some money off this thing. It's got to be a crowd pleaser to some extent. But what Gordy Willis did for those who are future filmmakers or love the technical expertise, that aspect of it, the shot compositions and the lighting is amazing, the Godfather films. And Gordy Willis gets credit for that. So very cool to see the Godfather on the big screen. Uh, I'm sure if you look up articles, Rolling Stone had a recap about it, but very cool. I was able to be a part of that. We'll do some movie reviews, and then we're going to get to Jeff Garland, who is very funny, a wonderful guy. Of course, the Goldbergs, which is on ABC. We're also going to talk about Curb Your Enthusiasm and some other projects of his. He's also a close friend of Conan O'Brien, so you'll want to hear what he had to say about Conan and what went down when The Tonight Show and all that whole mishap happened. First of all, I'm going to be talking about is I am Heath Ledger. I like to open the podcast with a review from a critic. We'll do it a little bit later on because we had that Levitard opening. But here's Owen Gleiberman, our friend from Variety on I Am Heath Ledger, new documentary. From that point on, he was flying, culminating in the moment when he went full Brando in The Dark Knight. 
His joker, a greasy-haired head case sucking on his scars and his demons, was the first and still the only flat-out 70s method psychodrama without a net performance in a contemporary blockbuster. And if Ledger hadn't died before the movie was released, it would have made him the king of Hollywood. In 300 cinemas, you can see I Am Heath Ledger. That's Wednesday, May 3rd. We're taping this on the 2nd. But tomorrow, 7.30 p.m. on 300 Cinemas, you can see I Am Heath Ledger. It's going to be available on DVD and digital May 23rd and on Spike TV May 17th at 10 p.m. Adrian Butenhuis and Derek Murray are the directors. And uh, it's a powerful piece of work. It's a reminder of just what a talented actor this guy was. I was amazed to be reminded that Heath Ledger died when he was only 28. I feel like he was 38, just like how strong his filmography was for a relatively young actor. But it's nice to see Naomi Watts and Ben Mendelsohn and Jaiman Hunsu and Ang Lee tell stories about him. Uh, obviously, his family talks about Heath, how he was growing up. There's lots of video of himself filming himself um, and why he had a passion to be an actor coming from Australia. How Mel Gibson was one of his heroes, the fact he got to work with him on The Patriot and how influential that was. Uh, for the purpose of Cinephile, there's three movies I want to focus on of his that I really like. Monsters Ball, which he played Billy Bob Thornton's son. Sadly, Billy Bob Thornton not in the documentary. It would have been nice to hear him talk about Heath. But he was great in that, and that was important because Ang Lee said that was his first really adult performance, and that's what made me want to cast him in Brokeback Mountain. And Emil Hirsch, who worked with him on Lords of Dogtown, tells a story about mocking Heath about Brokeback Mountain because that's what he was going to film next. And he's like, yeah, you're going to make some gay cowboy movie, and he was making jokes along those lines. And he goes, I made like one joke too many, then Heath just gave me a look like, hey, that's enough. And Ben Mendelsohn said, this is one of the biggest heartthrobs in the world at the time. He's a really good-looking guy. And he's going to make a romantic tragedy about two gay cowboys? Like, that took some serious guts for Heath Ledger to do that. Um, but that movie's amazing. I, when you watch it again or even just watch the clips from the film, as Ang Lee says, everything was clenched. You know, Heath Ledger's chin was just clenched the entire time. His hands are clenched. His whole body's clenched. He's just he's absolutely suppressed and just, you know, emotionally repressed. And he, he's holding back his feelings, but there's just so much rage and so much boiling inside of him. You know, it's like the lid just can't wait to get popped off. And, of course, on that movie, he was nominated for Best Actor, and it was, you know, obviously universal acclaim. The film probably should have won Best Picture. Crash won Best Picture that year, but it broke back Mount was amazing and obviously a very influential film. Uh, he fell in love with Michelle Williams on the movie. Jake Gyllenhaal always jokes about that. He goes, you know, me and Heath fell in love in the movie, but then him and Michelle fell in love off screen, had a daughter. And as much as I liked I Am Heath Ledger, one of the quibbles I'd have with the film is that I thought they should have gone more into these so-called demons. For example, they mentioned how happy he was when he found Michelle. He was a great dad to Matilda. But then a couple of people just say, well, the things fell apart, you know, as they sometimes do. And it's like, well, I would have liked to have known what happened to the dissolution of this relationship, which seemed to give him so much joy. Having said that, I understand it's friends and family telling the story, so they're not maybe going to delve into uh, all aspects of his life as much as maybe someone like I would like to see. Thankfully, though, they give you plenty of meat on the bone for the dark night. And um, one of his friends tells the story. Actually, his agent tells it first. He said, when we heard Chris Nolan was interested, immediately Heath was like, that's the part I want. That's what I need. Get me on a plane. Get me an audition. I know what I'm going to do. And his friend said he was talking to Heath, and he goes, like, how are you going to play it? Like, Nicholson made that role so iconic. I can do the Joker. And then he said he started, he started doing the voice to me. It's, it's a wonder. It's the best scene of the movie because he starts doing it. And he's imitating Heath doing the Joker. He's like, wow, well, what do you mean? And he was like, I got chills like when he started doing it. And he was like, why so serious? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he's like, okay, don't tell anybody. Like, that, that's between you and me. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And he's like, if you do that, that's so creepy and chilly and just different. That's the, that was the thing. How do you make it so different from what Nicholson was doing? And uh, one of the guys, this is fabulous, 
You know, Heath keeps having that thing as the Joker keeps licking his tongue. He said part of that was the prosthetic. It was supposed to be in his tongue. It was all scarred, but it kept slipping off. So Heath had to keep flipping his, flicking his tongue to keep it on there, but then he made it part of the character. He's always kind of just flipping his tongue like that. And, uh, you know, everything was his. Chris Nolan, obviously, not, not interviewed as well. I would have liked to see his thoughts. But the, 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 the green, greasy hair, the white splatched makeup, the red kind of smeared. He goes, that was all Heath. He goes, it should be kind of like this just a psychotic-looking Joker. Like, he's not printing it up. But that performance is unreal. The way Gleiberman wrote about that is amazing. Obviously, anybody who's seen The Dark Knight knows how powerful his performance was, and they all knew that Heath was going to just knock it out of the park and really did get uh, very invested in the character. Uh, and then they talk about, unfortunately, his passing, and his agent just says, listen, everyone's going to have their own narrative for what happened, and he did have an addictive personality. He did have trouble sleeping. His friends mentioned that he was a very restless spirit. He always seemed to have energy. He goes, he goes you'd get these – this is before Blackberries and text messages. He goes, like, you just – he would just call you like four in the morning. I'm like, yeah, Heath. He's like, oh, I just had this idea. And you're like, all right, can you call me in three hours? His agent all the time goes, like, he would just show up at your house at 7 a.m. Like, all right, let's go. Let's have breakfast. He's like, he goes, he just, he didn't sleep. And uh, unfortunately, that's where the addiction of the sleeping pills came in. And uh, again, the movie could have given me a little more. His agent just says, you know, that day when they found out he had passed, he goes, I called him like a hundred times. He didn't pick up and that wasn't like him. And um, he goes, you know, he had his demons, but... You know, it was really tragic. And that's where, as, as, just as a viewer, you go, okay, what were the demons then? Because they're not, they're not going into depth there. Uh, it is very um, sympathetic, though, to the parents of what his mom and dad say, which is that, you know, we lost our son. We had to grieve on a very public stage. For other people, obviously, we know that you loved him as an actor. But for us, imagine it's the worst, most unimaginable tragedy anybody can ever undergo. And you have to do it in front of cameras before the entire world. Like that it really is uh, incredibly difficult what they had to go through. But as they remarked, at least Heath made enough films that his daughter Matilda can see them. She can know the impact that her dad made. But some of his friends said that Heath always thought that that would happen. It was weird. They said he was always kind of like, yeah, I don't have much time. I think I'm going to die young. He was big into music. He loved uh, directing music videos. So he was really working on that. They show actually a few music videos he did. Ben Harper was a close friend. So I don't know if uh, I want to say it a premonition, but he seemed to have an idea that he was not long for this world which is kind of haunting and chilling when you think about it now. But I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. I encourage you all to check it out. I am Heath Ledger, a really nice tribute to a wonderful actor gone far too soon. Next up, Mifune, The Last Samurai, another documentary. This one came out last year. It's from Steve Okazaki, the Academy Award-winning filmmaker. And this works best as an introduction. If you don't know much about world cinema, uh, if you'll recall, when De Niro was here, I said to Mastrioni and Fellini, uh, and then I think I said Sidney Pollock and Robert Redford, and I said Kurosawa and Mifune and Ewan Marty. Of course, De Niro's made eight movies with Scorsese, 16 films in 18 years with Tashiro Mifune and Akira Kurosawa, and some of the greatest films of all time. And Mifune, The Last Samurai, the documentary, makes the case that Mifune was the first great action star. Uh, the movie tells his life story, fought in the war, grew up in Japan, kind of stumbled into acting. And then Rashomon made his career, made Kurosawa's career. It got worldwide acclaim. For those who haven't seen it, it's about an event told from four different perspectives. You see it in pop culture all the time. One time the Simpsons, in fact, had an homage to Rashomon. They had a scene on Homer. Because that's not how I remember it. And they did like four different takes. I'm like, oh, my God, they're referencing a 1951 Japanese movie made by Akira Kurosawa. But those, those Simpsons writers are all Harvard-bred. They're really smart. But Rashomon's a great movie. Seven Samurai, most people know that is an epic film that was made by Kurosawa and Mifune. And if you're thinking of English influence, look no further than Yojimbo, which is a great movie, which was adapted into A Fistful of Dollars by Clint Eastwood. And no bigger influence on Akira Kurosawa and Mifune than on George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg. So much so, 
Spielberg cast him in his comedy of the 1941, which I have never seen. Apparently, it's Spielberg's worst movies. I've never seen it. But Mifune, they did show a couple of clips of it in the movie. But they all love those Japanese epics. And Lucas was so inspired by Kurosawa and Mifune. The Hidden Fortress, which is a film that they made, is actually the template for Star Wars. And George Lucas, in fact, had reached out to Mifune about playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Mifune's agent turned him down because he was like, well, I don't think it'd be a good role for you. Just think how his world would have changed if he would have been Obi-Wan. Um, but but like I said, they had a huge influence on on even Westerns. Like Western movies were really impacted by Japanese films by these guys because they just felt so much bigger than what the Westerns were at that time. They just felt so much more heroic and ethereal. I mean, there was just there was just so heavy the way these guys made these movies. Um Hidden Fortress, like I said, that was a big influence, definitely. And Coppola and Lucas, after Kurosawa kind of went through a down, fray, a down time in his life and his career, ended up, I believe they produced Kagamusha, which came out in 1980. Definitely were involved in Ron, which is Kurosawa's take on King Lear. That came out in 1985. Uh, but that relationship within film history, Mifune Kurosawa, amazing. And uh, Scorsese, of course, Marty's all over the documentary. He talks about Mifune in Rashomon, and he said that he had read that Mifune studied lions because he wanted to be able to kind of channel that primal rage of a lion, the way he was just always kind of just bursting out of the seams. And that's always interesting about any actor, how much of what he is on screen, where he was literally just so strong and passionate, and how was he like in person? And some of that is there. They said he loved alcohol, he loved cars, and unfortunately he mixed those two a lot together. Uh, sometimes his son said when he'd get drunk, he'd pull out a sword and start swinging it around. So some self-destructive behavior there. But other times you hear about Mifune, and he was rather quiet and uh, you know kind of kept himself, but but enjoyed being a movie star and enjoyed the life. And he's critical to Japanese cinema, and he really was a, a force of nature. I don't use that phrase often, but to sure Mifune was that. I'm only giving it two and a half Maple Leafs because as somebody who knows quite a bit about Mifune, I would have liked the film to go much deeper. I thought it was fine. Um, but I think if it's a, if it's like a film one on one class or someone doesn't know anything about him, then I think you'd be like, oh, okay, I, I'm going to go watch a bunch of Toshiro Mifune movies because clearly this guy was a great Japanese actor, the first great action hero, and him and Kurosawa had a great relationship. If you're someone like me who has a little bit more uh, film history, you'd kind of go, all right, a lot of this I already knew. There's not too many details of his life, but I do encourage you to check out Mifune, The Last Samurai, Two and a Half Maple Leafs. And lastly, the movie that I'm going to be reviewing before we get to Jeff Garland. It's a film called Graduation. Uh, this is from the director of Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, Christy Munju. Apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. Romanian director. Uh, that film was well-received. This one, in fact, he shared the Best Director Prize at the Cannes Film Festival. What is most important is I saw it with my buddy Andy Katz yesterday. Andy's doing great. He loves Cinephile. He's a good friend. He had me on his podcast, in fact, talking movies years ago. So um, Andy said to me after the movie, because are you going to mention this on Cinefi? I said, of course I am. And I'm going to mention you. So he's the only guy that I can take to go see a Romanian film on a Monday afternoon. Uh, but it's a story about a dad who is trying to get his daughter desperately into college, which is why it's called graduation. But then she's assaulted and obviously rattled, does not do well on the exam. And then she's going to get a cast and they fear that she'll be cheating by using the cast and hiding notes in there and such. So this movie is really about the moral decay and disintegration of not only one man and his family, but also Romania as it were. And uh, I have not followed Bucharest much since the, you know, post-91, once the communist regime went down. But watching these films by this filmmaker, you, you get the sense that it is drab and dreary and just gray tenement buildings and hopelessness is in the air. And there are scenes of this guy like just eating dinner by himself. And I guess if you're just a casual fan, you go, this seems like a rather 
boring, dry movie, but you watch the film and you know that there's always something going on. There's something beneath the surface. And essentially what happens is that he's got to figure out a way to get his daughter to Cambridge. He wants to get her out of Romania and to London. But after this assault, because she's emotionally shaken and does not do well on the exam, he resorts to other measures to try to get her into school. So the movie really examples, like I said, moral complexity, you know, bribes and corruption, not only within academics, but within the police. And to what lengths will a father do to have a better future for his daughter? Um, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Like I said, it's, it's awfully drab and dreary. And um, But I did think it was effective. It did hold my attention. I thought it was an interesting film. I think it's important to support world cinema. So I'm giving that one two and a half Maple Leafs. Graduation, if you can find it, good luck to you. Now time for some laughs with my man, Jeff Garland. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. A real thrill to have Jeff Garland here with us in studio. I worked for Troy Gentile, your co-star yes, on the Gold Coast. Yes. We were correspondents for Oscar.com. Yes. If you think it's crazy that an ESPN sportscaster was one of the correspondents, how about your buddy who is so funny on the Goldbergs? And here we are. We're breaking down Moonlight and the cinematography of La La Land. Like, uh, it, it was a trip. Um, he's an adventure. <laughs> And by the way, I say that with great love. I am so fond of him, yeah. and I love him so much, but he is truly an adventure. I texted him, and I said, hey, Jeff's coming. He goes, what? He goes, he didn't tell me. And I'm like, well, m- maybe you guys are on hiatus right uh, now or something. No, I talked to him and stuff. But if I had known that he had right. done that with you, right. then I would have texted him and said, hey, man. Well, he said, he's so sweet. Oh, he, yeah. is, he is so ridiculously sweet that any right. nonsense from him is okay. <laughs> Well, he's got this great energy. Like when we're doing amazing rehearsals, energy. I don't know what it's like with rehearsals with the Goldbergs, but rehearsals for the Oscars. Like that guy was dialed in. Like no, he he's was, he's dialed in the same way. And he's, he said he goes, he come to the set sometime. He goes, we're in Culver City. Please. I go, I go, hey, I'll bring my whole family. If you're if you want to bring your family, please do. <laughs> my cousins are gigantic fans, and so this is a question from them. They go, ask Jeff, what is it like to do most of his acting with his pants off? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, it's not most, but it's a lot of acting. With, As a matter of fact, let me just give you an idea. Sure. So I get to work in the morning. I've read my scenes at night before I go to bed. Yeah. And that's my process. Then I come in, and when I go to makeup, I bring my scenes with me. So when I go in my trailer, I'm not really, like, that focused on what's been going on. Right. And when on the counter in my trailer, I see the tidy whities I get depressed. <laughs> I'm not hugely depressed. Right. It's like, oh, I'm spending the day. Right. And it's not even – first off, I don't wear tidy whities Of course. I did when I was a little kid. Right. Um, so it, they're not regular tidy whities Right. They're um, two pairs of tidy whities sewn together with like a piece – you know, like the thing, like uh, like the the foam, like in sports uniforms, like oh. for your knees, yeah. knee pad type thing. Right, right. They have that over my wiener. So the reason they have it over my wiener is because the uh, person, uh, the what do they call it, standards and practices are like, right. I see movement, <laughs> I see shadows. So it's um, it's like yeah. the nineteen fifty Hollywood code of conduct. Yes, like it's a little too so. Racy. And then I have my legs get a coat of makeup on them. So there's a wow. process. And then I'm like that all day. So I'll walk over to craft service, get food. Right. I'll talk to people. I'm not thrilled when there's guests on the set right. on underwear days. <laughs> Sometimes I'll make them, you know, not clear the set, but <laughs> enough of them hanging out. Right. You know? Can I get a robe? Yeah. The other thing, too, I, the episodes I've seen the Goldberg, a lot of yelling at the kids. How much of that was your own uh, influence or did you just go you know what 
this isn't anything like what I'm like as a dad or what my It's nothing like was. what I'm like as a dad. Right. As a dad, I mean, certainly I've yelled sure. before. Yeah, we all have. But I'm full of affection and love for my kids. Yeah. My boys are 17 and 21. Yeah. They let me kiss them as much as I want, right. hug them as much as I want. Right. I tell them I love them all the time. Right. And this guy is based on Adam Goldberg's dad. Right. And he's kind of a curmudgeon and doesn't show uh, affection that easily. Right. So very different than the way I am. Billy Bob Thornton told me he's, as an actor, sometimes it's fun to do that. Like, I love the movie The Man Who Wasn't There. Right. And I asked about it. He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm actually a really chatty guy. Right. So that movie, when I don't say a word and I'm just this taciturn character, right. when it was cut, I'm just yappity-yap the whole time. So I'm sure for you, you're like, hey, I'm playing this guy who's completely unlike me. It's fun to step into that skin. But that's not Jeff Garland. I don't know in terms of it being fun. Right. It's fun working. Right. You know, and um, I like being just me, too, just as much. That's why I do stand-up. <laughs> right. So there are no characters where I go into. Right. I suppose if I played a real bad guy, right, that might be fun. Right. Like a, a real yeah. killer. I did that once on C- – on, um, not CSI, on uh, – what's it called? No. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, um, uh, Law and Order. Law and Order. <laughs> so, yeah, Law One and of those long-running franchises. Law and Order with the letters. <laughs> yeah, and I was a rapist intent. and a murderer. Ah, oh, so, yeah, those would be like that was fun, right? Because you just you get to take a nice shower and clean this filth yeah. off of that character. Oh no, I didn't take it. the filth off I, because at no point am I believing that I'm that character. Right, right. I cannot wait for Curb. I know you guys have been filming the episodes. A great excuse with you coming here was I got to go back and tell my wife I had homework to do and go back and watch Curb episodes. Oh, yeah. I, I think the and I know this is tough to say the best one, but I think Palestinian Chicken. Is your favorite? Really reaches a that's level a, of comic I will say that's you, you our call, most popular episode. Right? Yeah. You call Larry a, a – what, what is the exact term? Oh, a social assassin. A social assassin. Yeah, assassin. Yeah. Outside of the chicken place. Um, Why do you think that one resonates with people? Uh, I don't analyze it. Right. I'm just happy something resonates. Right. My favorite episode is one called Wandering Bear, where Cheryl's vagina itches. Oh, yeah, yeah, And uh, Larry and I are obsessed with girls going wild. <laughs> That's my favorite Yeah, one. when you pop in the tape, you guys are so excited. Yeah, we're very excited. I know, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because you know what? I love the Paul Schrader movie, Autofocus. With Willem Dafoe and Paul Schrader, and that's the line. I think Larry says, or maybe you said, you go, no, he, he Larry goes, this, says, is like, this is like an autofocus. Focus, like, yeah. How many people are getting that reference? But I yeah. loved it. Autofocus yeah. is great. See, I'm a big believer in just doing whatever you think is funny, right. and you hope that people get it. Right. I don't think that you tailor a show like people are going to love this. Right. You do the best. See, that's what individual great comedy, that's how it becomes great, right. because you do something that's personal, and it taps into people. And you didn't count on it. Well, and that's why I, I honestly, you have to explain this to me because I don't get it. I've seen every interview with you and Larry and Richard Lewis and you go, yeah, we have an outline and then just go. But how is that actually possible? Like, how do you go 23 minutes? How do you have plot lines? Like, doesn't like a jigsaw puzzle, one scene has to lead to another line. So if you're okay. living so much, how do you jigsaw do Jigsaw puzzle is when I've done Arrested Development. Right. As a Which fact, I love. I, you and Aaliyah Shawcott. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, but I've said to Mitch Hurwitz, especially the last season that they just did uh, yeah. on Netflix, right. I had to film so many things that I had no idea what I was doing and why I was doing it. Right. And he said, do you want me to explain it to you? And I said, no, don't. Uh, when I watched Mitch, the show. Figure it out. Because they also had a board with like yarn, connecting cards oh, and yeah. things. And I said, you've combined calculus with comedy. As far as Curb. It's an outline, and we just do it. As a matter of fact, I do most almost every take differently. So it's literally one page outline. 
That's no, it. it's then, seven pages. Okay, seven pages. So there's some development, but then yeah. di- different takes try different lines. The dialogue is pretty much always different. Yeah, that's insane. like that takes such trust in your guys around you for Larry to go. No, Garland's genuinely funny. He'll think of something funny. Lewis is funny. Like we'll, we will. Well, get he there. writes a funny scenario. There's not a lot I have to do except right. just dive into the truth of whatever's going on. But I think Jeff is like the best friend anybody could have. Like no matter what, Larry gets in trouble. Which is, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, I do stand all- behind him. <laughs> that is. People ask me if there's a character trait, and I go, "That's it." Steadfastly loyal. Steadfastly loyal. Like if loyal. he's wrong, you'll still because defend I him. think that that he's not he's not about anything. Right. Uh, the Jeff Green character. Right. But he is about Larry's the best, and I'm going to protect him. I love the masseuse episode too. Like he comes back and he tells you, and you're like, "Why? What? What? Why'd you tell her to stop?" Because it was five pumps. You're like, yeah. "Why?" Just th- that was the whole point. Yeah, yeah pots. <laughs> he couldn't say stop. He said pots. Uh, handsome is your new. Oh, wait, when's when is Curve coming out? By the way, I know it's uh, in the fall. Okay, so in the fall we can look forward to that at HBO. Yeah. Season ten episodes. Yes, whole crew's back together again. Everything's better back again, again and better than ever. How excited were you when you got the call from Larry that hey, we're going to do this again? You in? There was no excited because. We'd been discussing it for a long time. Right. And it was just sort of like coming closer, coming closer, coming closer. Right. So it wasn't a, what, really? (laughs) It was like, oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Strap it on again. Handsome, new movie on Netflix. I know you love Columbo growing up. I don't know if you do a Peter Falk impression. I do not. Okay. But it's the first Netflix mystery movie. This, uh, and it comes on uh, May 5th. Okay. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. What, What was it about mysteries that appealed to you? I just enjoyed Columbo. I enjoyed Banachek, <laughs> McMillan and Wife. Right. I even enjoyed Cannon, right. Barnaby Jones. <laughs> I mean, I just liked, you know, crime shows from the 70s. Right. Now, by the way, this is not imitating that. It's my own thing, and it's definitely different, but right. that's what it harkens back to. Netflix, the place to be now. Like, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. The fact that The Irishman with him, De Niro, Pacino, is not going to a major studio, right. but Netflix for $105 million. And I yeah. think it's because the deal fell apart with Paramount, and then they said to Marty, hey, listen, you're the greatest living director. Do what you want. Here's the money. Just go. If it's three hours or four hours, go for it. Right. If that's the edge Netflix has over all these other studios. He's going to make a, a great movie. Right. Like, yeah. no matter what, it's going to be great. Uh, how are you? I, I know you're a huge Cubs fan, by the way. Yes. Can we get Joe Madden on Curb? Like, Bill, Bill Buckner I've already tried. What did, Joe's got to be in. He's in no, a reference. No, no, it's not a matter of that. It was when we were shooting. It was uh, during spring training, and two different dates didn't work. As uh, a matter of fact, I'm, i I got to check the Cubs' schedule because yeah. we have three more days that we're shooting that he might be able to. That It's a long shot. I don't think he's going to be able to. Uh, but if we do another season, who knows? Also, because Madden's just like a, he's a centric guy. Like, he's the best. He's, he's the best like, guy I want to be best friends with him. We're acquainted. I do text with him. He texts with him. Something. Yeah. And he says things like groovy. But um, yeah, I cool dig guy. him. Big time. I want to be his best friend. Is that wrong? Where were you when the Cubs won? I mean, this is the moment every Chicago sports Well, game. I was at Wrigley Field for the games that were there. Awesome. And then I, I, I had to go back to work on the Goldbergs. They were nice enough oh. to make sure I got out for that Friday game. Right. So um, I had to be back. So I watched the game. In my uh, uh, my home, right, and uh, I screamed, "Oh my God!" while weeping, over and over and over again. It's the best. Yeah. That's why sports is the best, right? Like that yeah. cathartic moment, you can't yeah. get that anywhere else. And that is what's unfortunate for me is I know that I've already experienced the greatest sports moment of my lifetime. <laughs> for me, you can never top this. It's already done. Right, so it's done. But my dad never had that moment. Right. And a lot of dads and grandfathers and 
great grandfathers never had that moment. So right. I'm lucky I have that moment. Oh, so even if they win this year, it won't pass this. Right. That, that is yeah. true. And by the way, I don't know that they will win this year. <laughs> Or next year, or the year after. But the thing about the Cubs now that I love yeah. is every year we have a chance. No question. And that is the difference. Right. You can, we got Bryant. We got Rizzo. Yeah, we got all no, these young studs. Yes. We're going to be in it no matter yes. what. Yes. Um, I just read this book about Letterman, and he's a fascinating guy, right? Because there's, yeah. there's nobody who's more talented but more self-loathing. Right. And they talk all about talk show hosts. They talked about Conan. And it made me think about how your friendship with Conan, the fact you guys lived together at one right. point. And just like literally when you take a step back now, how crazy everything was what happened with The Tonight Show. With your friendship with him, how much did you keep in touch with him through that, or was it just one of those words? Oh, The Tonight Show with, with, with right. Leno? Yeah, it was so well, so why don't you bring that up? I was seeing a clip of Leno on Jimmy Fallon the other day, and I just thought, it's too bad. Right. It's too bad because here's what I remember, and I saw this, and you can look it up on the Internet. Sure. Was Leno saying, Conan, the show's yours. Yeah. It's time to step down. It's over. And I thought, well, that's very nice. Mm-hmm. And you can change your mind, but you you got to do something else. Right. And the truth is, Conan, to me, is not a Tonight Show host guy. Right. I was loyal to him, and I wouldn't go back on the Tonight Show. Right. Um, when, at least when Jay, when Jay hosted, came back. Yeah. I read that, yeah. But Conan's an edgy, you know, sort of guy. He's a, to me, he's a 1230 guy. Right. To me, he's a... He was Letterman late night. TBS guy. Right, right. Uh, HBO guy. Yes. He should have a show on HBO. I mean, right. that's what he is more to me than a mainstream sort of host type thing. Right. But what they did to him, I thought, was terrible. Yeah. Even moving it back a half hour. What? <laughs> It's just such a stupid thing. <laughs> it's just so surreal. But I, I did keep in touch with him, yeah. and I was supremely loyal. Yeah. Well, I thought that was great of you because, like you said, I understand the show business. Like if Leno said, listen, it's not my fault that they wanted to push me out, and then I had to go do this 10 o'clock show, which I wasn't comfortable with. Right. But to your point, hey, when the thing falls apart, you don't go back and then jump in the house again. No, you don't. Right. You go, hey, no. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Uh, if you don't want Conan, that's one thing, but I'm going to go. But my check. gut feeling is that NBC <laughs> contacted him and just said, hey, listen. We don't like Conan's way working out. We're not out. really happy with what Conan's Would you be willing to come back? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he didn't hesitate. <laughs> Makes it difficult. Yeah. Triumph the insult comic dog. You're right. That's tough at 1130, but at 1230, it's great. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm from Toronto originally. I know yeah. you've done Just for Laughs in Toronto and Montreal, if I'm no, not No, I've never done uh, okay. Montreal. They've never. Well, actually, when I needed it, right. they did not have me. And now that it means nothing to me, <laughs> I get asked quite often, and I will say what I'll say every time. No, thank you. Right. Well, you're... Why do I want to go to Montreal? <laughs> what reason? I'm living in Los Angeles. Are you moving the event to New York City? Right. By the way, North Montreal yeah. is one of the few places I've never been. Yeah. I know it's a lovely place. Yeah. I don't want to go. <laughs> Well, you're much like English Canada then, because most yeah. English Canadians have animosity towards French Canada, so you're fine. Yeah. Handsome's on Netflix May 5th. The Goldberg's on Wednesdays. I can't wait to text Troy and tell him we get to hang out. And uh, exciting, I'll yeah. come to Culver City sometime. and we'll Please do. It'd be a delight to have you. I'm really hoping. I I, I just keep thinking about Joe Madden now and Curb. It's like the comic no, potential. We, and we had two different things they would have been great for. And, right. You know, we'll try again. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. All right, so Jeff was awesome. As soon as the interview ends, he says, oh, you're a delightful young man. That was a lot of fun. I said, no, I appreciate it. 
And uh, because I'm cognizant of the clock, you know, he had just done Mike and Mike, and then he had to do the Levitard show. I probably could have gone a few more minutes because then we spent a few more minutes chatting, and I wish you all could have heard his answer. But I will tell you what he said. I said, I really liked your film, I Want Someone to Eat Cheese With, which I had mentioned at the start of the interview. And he said, yeah, and I said, I really think it's underrated. And I said, you know, the, the problem is, though, is it's just the release date. Like, it came out in the 2000s. It's like what Billy Bob told me. Like, in the 90s is when those indie movies had to come out. That's when there was a real demand for it. And he goes, well, I agree, I disagree. He goes, it's not it's underrated, but it is underappreciated. He goes, but the movie, it's the first, well, the first movies ever that was released day and date. He goes, I don't know if I'm saying that the right way, but it was released like in the theater and on demand at the same time. And he goes, for a time, it was like the number one movie through whatever streaming service it was released through, IFC, whatever it was. Uh, He goes, for a time, it was like the number one most downloaded. So it was actually really influential. But he said, if you liked I Want Someone to Eat Cheese With, you're going to love Handsome, this movie I have coming out on Netflix. I said, okay, great. He goes, because I'm not the type to be like, check out my movie Handsome. It's great. He goes, that's just not me. He goes, but the fact that you said you like I want someone to eat cheese with, then I can tell you right now, you will really like Handsome. Because he goes, it's, it's, the, it's the work I'm most proudest of. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He goes, like, obviously, everyone's going to know me from Curb and Goldbergs and stuff. But I, I, I'm most proudest of Handsome because I like mysteries. I like these movies. And I said, that's just great that you have that opportunity to do these things. I go, like, I heard you say to Green and Golick when they asked you what projects you want to do. And he goes, like, I'm happy, man. Like, I got a great gig. He said, oh, yeah. And then because my cousins, I had to listen to his podcast. I said, hey, what happened to your podcast? And he goes, real simple. I just don't have time. Because I go, you're, you're doing what I used to, what I am doing, which is I have a job as a sportscaster, and I just do this podcast because it's fun. And I said, you're an actor who just did a podcast for fun. He goes, yeah, I just don't have the time. He goes, between Goldberg's and Curb and my stand-up. And he goes, well, what happened is there's two things. He goes, I don't know if you run into this here. He said, one, I, I needed a producer. Thankfully, I have Dan Stanzik. But he goes, I needed a producer to get guests because it's like you have a guest every time. And I'm like, well, I can't just text Will Ferrell. I'm like, hey, you're around Wednesday at 10. Like, you know, it's just a pain. And he goes, the other thing was the commercials. I had to do all these commercials to do it. And I just didn't really have the time to do it. He goes, but it was fun to do. He goes, I think it's cool that you're doing this podcast. He goes, like, you know, it's kind of fun. Like, it's, it's, I, I get why you do it because that's why I was doing it. It was just fun to kind of have that outlet. But I just don't really have the time. And I said, well, I think, Jeff, like your podcast was good just the way Mark Marin's done. And he's like, yeah, Marin, though. He goes, he's an odd guy, though, huh? And I said, yeah. I said, well, I just did this Brockmeyer panel with his area. And the IFC president, Jen Caserta, was there. And she's phenomenal. Could not be nicer, more delightful. And he said, is Marin still on? I said, no, I asked her. She said, it just ended. And I had asked her, I'm like, what's Marin like? Because I go on the podcast. Like, I go, what I like about him is he's authentic. But I go, he seems like he's just a negative angry guy like he's got a lot of neuroses and garland goes yeah because the last time i was on he was giving me crap because he's like man you're just so happy and i'm like well yeah that's who i am and he goes and he's just so negative because like marin is just like he's just a wet blanket all the time and he goes like he goes it made sense like the tv show like why why would people watch marin like he's not he's like he's not a tv show kind of guy like he's just kind of an angry pessimistic guy like the podcast is good the comedy's good like i'm not gonna watch a tv show like he's not an actor (laughs) i said yeah it's kind of interesting and then I said, uh, seriously, I'm going to text Troy the picture of us. And he goes, yeah, seriously, I wish I had known you guys at Oscar.com together. That's great. He goes, but you're, you're more than welcome to come visit the set anytime you want. Uh, we're in Culver City in the fall, so maybe we'll do a cinephile on the road. We go visit Jeff Garland and Troy Gentile on the cast of the Goldbergs. And then I said, last I have a shirt for you. I said, uh, we only have large in XL. Sorry, this is an XL. He goes, oh, that's great. He goes, I, I can, I, XL works for me. He goes, that's awesome. And he, I'll tell you this. Of all the people we've given shirts to, I think he was the happiest. I swear to God. He was like, oh, that's awesome. And I said, I know. And I kind of took a shot. I'm like, yeah, I know Greeny and Golf, but I didn't give you a shirt. He goes, no, whatever. I don't want a shirt from those guys anyways. He goes, I really like this shirt. This is more my style. He's like, thanks a lot, man. I'm like, yeah, seriously. So I would say the two happiest people to receive a cinephile shirt, Jessica Alba's dad and Jeff Garland. And Kevin Hart's number three. Yeah, Hart was the least least pleased that we gave him the shirt. But Garland was like legit happy about it. 
All right. I also interviewed David Duchovny. This was uh, earlier in my week. In fact, it was last week when I was filling in on Rosillo. So uh, I love Duchovny because I love the Larry Sanders show. So you'll like his answers to what I asked him about though, that, that cameo he did, which is one of the funniest ever, and Gary Shandling. Also, I'm sure if you're an Exiles fan, we asked about that. Uh, Californication, a very funny show, and he's got a new book out as well. So here is David Duchovny, repurposed for Cinephile. Real thrilled to bring in David Duchovny. You know him as a terrific actor from his work on The X-Files. I'm a huge fan of his guest appearances in The Larry Sanders Show, but he has a new book out. It's all about Bucky Dent. David, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So I have the uh, the notes here in the book, which I cannot wait to read, but they say it's a richly drawn story about the bonds between fathers and sons and the age-old rivalry between Yankee fans and the Fenway faithful. Bucky F. And Dent, tell me... Uh, how you came to this project? A, a big baseball fan. I'm assuming you're either a Yankees or a Red Sox fan. I am a big baseball fan. I, I played uh, a long time, and um, I grew up in in New York in the late '60s, '70s, and was a a fan of the crappy Yankee teams. You know, uh, after uh, Mickey Mantle, before uh, the Bronx is burning, uh, late '70s Yankees. So, temperamentally, I feel like I have a lot more in common with the the pre-2004 Red Sox uh, nation than I do with uh, the winning Yankee teams that people associate uh, with New York now. But there were many strands that, that kind of brought the book together. But um, one of them was this idea that I heard when I was vacationing in New England once. I heard somebody refer to Bucky F. and Dent. And coming from New York, I had never heard that before. He was just Bucky Dent. He was uh, he, he did something heroic in 1978, Bucky Dent. But in in New England, he's his full name is Bucky F. and Dent, and it just struck me as funny. And then the whole kind of moral universe of the book revolves around the fact that it's never Mickey Mantle that actually beats you, or it's never it's never Reggie Jackson, it's never Willie Mays. It's it's and it's true in baseball. It's often Bucky F. and Dent, and that became kind of a a uh, a peon to the to the losers. Not the, not that Bucky's a loser, but he's an unsung guy, and it became about the little guy. Indeed, and that's why people love the little guy because it was just such an unlikely moment. Like I was born in '78, so obviously I did not uh, live the moment. But when, right. when, when people talk about it, it's as a baseball fan, as a broadcaster. It's immortalized because, as you're pointing out, it, it's not Reggie. It wasn't, you know, a major name. It's Bucky F. and Dent. Like, this is, and it's why it's one of the singular pleasures of sports because you can believe in that moment, David, that a guy like Bucky Dent can be the hero, even though he doesn't look like one. Well, I think in baseball, more than, than anything, you know, uh, more than any other sport, there's so many different things that can go right or wrong in a game. And, uh, it seems, and it and it does bear out that often in the biggest times in the World Series uh, or in the biggest games, a guy you never thought would come through comes through, or a guy you'd never prepare for to beat you beats you. And I think baseball, pretty much more than any other sport, is uh, has a lot of that in it. No question. We're talking right now with David Duchovny. You know him for all of his. Stellar acting work, but he has a new book out, Bucky F. and Dent, a novel, which I encourage you all to check out. I can't wait to see it because it looks like, David, this is you know some serious subject matter. I'm sure that obviously it's, it, there's lots of humor yeah. because you can weave that in there. But this is clearly a project for yeah. you that looks like you wanted to show a different side of yourself. Well, it's a proper novel. You know, it, it's, a, it's a proper story. It's a story about life and death. 
and it's fathers and sons and it's a love story and it, it doesn't hopefully it doesn't blink you know it 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 addresses and embraces uh, the seriousness of life but like all i think like all great works that are the most serious it should also be effing funny <laughs> lucky effing funny I hope people yeah. love the book and check it out. And I have certainly appreciated your career, none more so than my favorite show, The Larry Sanders Show. And you are responsible yeah. for perhaps the funniest cameo ever and the fact that you are in love with Larry. And in the final episode, yeah. which, you know, there's so many shows, David, you know this, it's tough to end on a high note. But the Larry Sanders Show, the final one-hour finale, yeah. was as good as it gets. Like That was a high point for the show. I know Gary and Peter Tolan finally won an Emmy for writing for that show. And you were amazing yeah. with, the, with the Sharon Stone homage. Tell me just about, I, I mean, I was so saddened when I heard that, Gary Shandling passed away, but just tell me about that show yeah. and your relationship with him. Well, um, the first, I, I did a guest spot before I did the having a crush on Gary guest spot. I did one where I get uh, bumped uh, from a spot and I get pissed off. And, and uh, so, but that came about because I, I uh, called my agent. I was shooting the X-Files in Vancouver and I was obsessed with the Sanders show. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't like now where cable shows got big. It was like a cable show. You know, nobody, it wasn't a big hit show. Not a lot of people knew about it, but I was like, send me those VCR tapes every week. You know, <laughs> I need those VCR tapes of the Sanders show. So I, I told my agents, I said, I re I'm tired. I really want to take a break after this season of the X-Files, but I want to do two things. I want to host SNL and I want to get on the Sanders show. And other than that, I just want to relax. And, uh, I got to get on the Sanders show and I watched Gary do the talk show bit before I was going to be on. And he looked, looked me right in the eye and it was clear. He had no idea who I was. <laughs> he didn't know I was going to be on the show with him. And then we, we did a little scene in the hallway on this episode where I got bumped and we, he cut and he, he looked at me and, and he said, how old are you? And I said, uh, I think it was 33 or 32. And he said, uh, what took you so long? And to me, that was like still, to me, it was the best moment I've ever had in show business where this guy whose instincts and whose insight and whose perception I thought was spot on was saying to me, hey, you're a funny actor, you know? Yeah, I'm not, I can't. And uh, to this day, yeah, I rely on those kinds of moments to, to get me through. 100%, because like to me... Listen, Gary Shandling was a big star, certainly in the 80s, not only with the Larry Sanders show in the 90s, but it's Gary Shandling's show. But I think you're right. Among actors and comedians, if Gary thought you were funny, that was like a badge of honor. And that show, I grew up, you mentioned Vancouver. I grew up in Canada, so I grew up in Toronto. But yeah. and, and I was like, you're right. You had to find the show. I'd, I'd watch it on CBC at like 12.05 a.m. on Saturday night. So I'm like, the one kid in high school. I watched school. a lot of CBC up in Vancouver <laughs> myself. The National. I watched a lot of. Yeah, you know what I watch a lot of Vancouver Canucks hockey, curling. Probably. Oh, curling, nice. curling. <laughs> <laughs> Underrated sport, right? <laughs> hard. What is it? Hurry hard. Hurry yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They get the brooms on. Hurry hard. Well done. Um, but you're right. Shows like that, like now, we refer to them as cult hits. But I, I appreciate you being uh, appreciative of that moment because that's you know people now say we're in the golden age of television, but to me, shows like that were the forerunner to all of this, right? Well, Sanders for sure was the father to just about every cable uh, comedy that came after and uh, much, much. And if you trace it, like if you want to do a genetic test, like trace it through Judd Apatow, 
who was like the filmic uh, master of comedy of the moment. Judd comes right out of Gary. Judd wrote for Gary. Judd was Gary's protege. So, and Judd would be the first person to tell you that he learned how to be a, a comedic writer, director from, from Gary. So not only uh, just his work survives in his influence, but, but also through the, the people that, that he mentored, like Judd, like myself. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, uh, Gary was a, was a great friend and um, a great comedic mind and a, and a great philosopher, really. You know, more than anything, you know, I feel like Gary is a funny philosopher. Yeah, no question. I, mean, I was watching the episode of the Comedians in Cars getting coffee with Seinfeld, which sadly was uh, shortly before he passed. And in there, you're right, he philosophized yeah. a lot and talked about at his funeral, he wants like a judge to give him a standing eight count and then an eight just to say he's not getting up. So, like, it's, he's just such a funny guy. And such such a oh, dark God. guy. Um, my brother is a huge X-Files uh, fan. My cousins as well. They, they were so happy to have the reboot back. Yeah. What did you think of the reboot? And is, are we lucky enough to get more X-Files episodes? Yeah, we're going to do 10. We're going to shoot 10 uh, starting in August. Uh, I feel like six was, uh, it was a start. Uh, unfortunately, I think there was, there was such a gap to cover and so much story to tell that by the time we could get going on new stuff, we were already halfway through the season. So I think 10 will be a little more comprehensive, a little more relaxed, a little less uh, dense. So I think we'll be, I'm looking forward to this uh, iteration of the show. And last one, I should say, uh, Californication. I remember watching, again, this is this age of all these great shows when you take chances and do whatever you want. It, I mean, that show, right. the first season, I was like, man, this is no holds barred. But I just loved, and it's, it's credit to your acting, because you just have that great wry sense of humor and this deadpan. Like, Evan Handler is hysterical as your agent, and he's yeah. getting caught in the office doing who knows what. And I'm like, but your guy's just, that's that bemused expression on his face, you know, just the black T-shirt, just hanging out, yeah. just a writer. Like, it's, I love the way you played that character. Yeah, it was a, it was a guy who was at home with uh, chaos, you know. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't try to fix uh, the results of anything and, and always told the truth and that was a that was a fun character to play and evan you're right tremendous uh the stuff that he would do and totally commit to i i could never have done and and pam adlon now has her own show on fx called the better things and and you know there were a lot of talented to tom Capanos who created and ran the show the whole time with an amazing writer and um Again, you know, very different from Sanders, very different comic sensibility, but but also a worthwhile one, I think. No question. David Duchovny, Bucky F. and Dent, a novel. Check it out as will I. Thanks so much uh, for the time, but also reflecting on your Thank work, you. man. Thank you. We, we'll do a whole – next time we'll just talk about curling. For <laughs> Absolutely. Stories about Vancouver, Stanley Park, whatever you want. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. All right, well, thanks to David Duchovny and Jeff Garland, both two terrific guests. Next time on Cinephile, it'll be the official one-year anniversary. We'll have a quiz. We're giving out free shirts. We'll do some streaming for you, a Scorsese story about the film Hugo, and uh, we'll do some actor showcase as well. We'll bring back all the favorites again. Kevin Spacey will likely be the suspect that we target in terms of actor showcase. Closing thoughts here, Dan? What do you got for me? Good wordplay there. Kevin Spacey, the suspect. I see what you did. I know where you're going. And for reviews, let's be honest, post-Oscars, it has been kind of tough to find some quality movies, but I'm really looking forward to seeing Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2.
Hopefully it's really good. We'll review that next time on Cinephile. I thought about watching The Circle. That's where Andy Katz was kind of leaning. He likes Tom Hanks. 17% of Rotten Tomatoes. Supposed to be just an atrocious movie. And I like Dave Eggers, the writer. It's, it's based on Eggers' book, which I haven't read, but I'm like, I wonder what he's thinking right now. Hanks does this movie, and it's supposed to be just hot garbage. Unlike this podcast, though, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.